Hi, I'm Kit Kennedy and welcome to Unchurchable. I'm happy to brag that this is the second episode of the year and I only have to produce one more to blitz past last year's miserly effort. I'm committed though, plenty of amazing content yet to come and plenty of appointments already in my diary. Now for a cultural snapshot of where we are in time, as I hit record on this episode, an Australian politician by the name of Andrew Wilkie has lit up the Australian deconstruction space by using parliamentary privilege to air whistleblower documents leaking a huge amount of tea from Camp Hillsong when it comes to the money. Ah, the money, the money, the great corrupter of things. Now, it's a hot topic, one that's been a bit fascinating to watch in the way that Hillsong has tried to play it down and hit out against Andrew for using parliamentary privilege, which means he can't be pro- uh, prosecuted in court. Uh, for anything that he's brought to the table there. I love it. I'm so here for it. But truly, it gives me hope. Firstly, in that good politicians exist. I do know a few. (laughs) But it's always nice when another one helps restore your faith in humanity. Secondly, it's encouraging in that powerful men can often seem untouchable and powerful institutions can often seem out of reach when it comes to seeking justice. Um, against them. And you know what? Hillsong and Camp uh, Houston, they seem like both. But it makes me think that if Lady Justice has come for them, then perhaps she's not done with the causes that sent so many of us running from churches and caused us to find ourselves out in the beautiful, wild, weird wilderness so we could heal. Sorry about the alliteration there, but hey, it's true, isn't it? The space outside church was always something I feared, perhaps something I was taught to fear, and sadly, something I know I taught other people to fear. And while we sit with the sadness and the weirdness and the what the fuckness of all that's gone down in our collective and individual deconstruction, I've got to say, it's not all that bad. Some days, more days than not, it's bloody wonderful out here. Today's guest turned up in my life through the gram, as a lot of people do, and I'm so very glad she did. Emma Ocean is the soul behind Psychonium Healing Practice. She has a master's in psychology, she's a coach, she does energy work, and she's all about that trauma-informed shadow work in the existential space that many of us were taught to fear, but that also, as it turns out, is kind of beautiful. I'm going to let her tell you more about that. But let me also tell you the joy I get out of speaking with another intelligent, embodied, confident soul who's found her ability to think and thrive and be. It's something so many of us never got to experience inside our toxic walks in religion, but it is something that can truly lie ahead as we deconstruct and claim our own right to explore spirituality and indeed thinking. Unchurchable Tribe, meet Emma. Hello and welcome to episode two of Unchurchable. This is already 200% better than I did last year, I think, on episodes. And I'm here with the fabulous Emma from Synchronium Healing Practice. Am I getting that right? Excellent. I was actually just thrilled when um, Emma popped up on the gram because... I'm super interested in psychology. I'm super interested in ways that other people practice spirituality. Once we stop thinking of everything that we don't understand as evil, all of a sudden there's some beautiful spiritual practices that can come into our lives um, or that can be part of our experience. So I was super interested to read your Instagram bio and hear about the work you're doing. So tell us a bit about yourself, Emma, and how you got into this space. Yeah, so um, I am a therapeutic coach, a therapist that kind of straddles spirituality and psychology and a little bit of everything in between. Mm -hmm. Um, It is really wonderful to be present with people in their healing journey. So I started actually in political science because I knew I wanted to make change in the world. And then I found out it was really boring (laughs) <laughs> I I realized that top-down change takes a really long time and mm-hmm. is kind of like beating your head against a brick wall. And I found that change that happens in people has such a much broader ripple effect. So I switched into psychology and have been here ever since. Psychology is such a fascinating area isn't it I Mm -hmm. um having been raised in evangelicalism we're kind of taught that we're these tripart beings that we we are a spirit 
and we have a soul and we live in a body and it creates this kind of divorce between those three parts whereas I actually think that we are one unit you know Mm. that that all of these things are part of us Um, and so this whole thing around embodiment spiritual practices that isn't tied up with dogma and of course psychology is so fascinating so in um in your experience with uh being a spirituality coach um do you come across people who are deconstructing religion a bit oh yes all the time (laughs) I think it's one of those things therapists have um a bit of a magnetism to things that we've experienced ourselves yeah so when we're going through mother wounding we get a bunch of clients who are also going through mother wounding. It's that mirroring, unfortunately. So as I was deconstructing my own experience yeah. um, in Christianity, um, full full frontal with a lot of other people who were deconstructing in different ways. <laughs> so it has been such an incredible um, practice for me to literally practice what I preach. Um, yeah one of the things that I hold very dearly is I never ask clients to do something I haven't done myself. So everything that, that I get to do, I also have done. So deconstructing Christians have such an interesting psychology because embedded very, very deeply is what's called the fatal flaw. This belief that you're just inherently bad there's, it's so vague that you can't even pin it on a wall. It's just this haunting, phantom, buzzing sound. When you ask it for evidence, there's nothing really tangible there. It's just so deeply embedded because when children hear something over and over again, we, of course, believe it. And yeah. people outside of the church, I don't know if they can fully grasp how weird it is. <laughs> I've experienced Children. that a lot. Yes. The 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 weirdness of um you know, like my, my ex husband and I, we hang around with a lot of the same people. Um, not all the same people, we have our own individual friends, but often we'd be just like laughing and having driveway drinks. And then one of us would tell a story which was so cool and normal for for us growing up. And then it just like <laughs> You can hear a pin drop and people like, well, that's not normal. But it actually kind of was parenthood that changed things significantly for me because I'm looking at this baby who is all innocence, who is all primal instincts, who is all just um, the need for food and comfort and, you know, that's it, food, comfort and sleep. And we were supposed to see this fatal flaw in him that he is born into a sin nature. Um, I haven't named it like that in my deconstruction Mm -hmm. practice, though. So tell me more about how you do this fatal flaw work with people. Mm -hmm. This, I think, is a big one. Yeah, it's one of the most interesting things when we invite this very deeply embedded coping strategy And it is a coping strategy. We have no judgment for it. I think, I often think about my parents who, um, by no fault of their own, were trying to protect me from eternal damnation. And if I believed that my child would be burning eternally in hell, like, yes, I would do anything Mm -hmm. to protect them. It's just that that protection comes through as control because it's yeah. fear. In love, we actually protect. Yeah. In fear, we control. So yeah. that's a look, little sentence you just dropped there, but big dichotomy, isn't it? Yeah. In fear, we control. In love, we protect. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to sit with that for a while. I'm going to sit mm-hmm. with that, Emma, but continue. <laughs> yeah. So the fatal flaw is something that we see across abuse survivors. Um, It's in domestic violence, in battered woman syndrome, in any type of chronic abuse situation. What we see is that Stockholm syndrome first, Uh where in every deconstruction journey, there's so many caveats. I'm this type of Christian, but not this type of Christian. We have a whole list of what kind of Christian we aren't. 
That's Stockholm syndrome. That's the first thing that we see with the fatal flaw. The next thing we see is the things that are done in the name of love. Things that are masquerading as love that aren't love. Control is the number one thing. I do this in the name of love. Judgment, ostracization, how we have to earn love through works, all of these things peddling as love, and they're not. Mm. The one type of love that we're told, the love of God, that we're told is unconditional, is ironically the most conditional love of all. So, so conditional. I love you so, so much. I killed my kid. And if you don't... Like confess him as your Lord and Savior, you will burn in hell forever. Yeah, this is this is so interesting. I, I also witnessed the conditional love in I love you, comma, but. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the but cancels everything that was sent before. And I love you, but you can no longer be part of this church. I love yes. you, but you know, like mm. Having experienced that, it is really jarring when we come to establish our own uh, ecosystem of love in which we want to reparent ourselves, in which we want to find a partner who aligns with our values but yet somehow kind of develop this unconditional love which Mm -hmm. is kind of almost a misnomer in romantic relationships. I could be wrong about that. Um, And, of course, parent our children um, in a way that doesn't result in our own kind of estrangements. Mm-hmm. It's terrifying. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. Love is absolutely terrifying. What yeah. happens when we get conditional love over and over again, when we actually experience unconditional love mm-hmm. in its truest form, we don't even trust it. No. Because we think, well, I ha- all love requires sacrifice. So if yeah. this is free, there must be a string attached somewhere. Yeah. Yep. I've spent so many years looking for the strings now in my mm. – um, and, and it's been fascinating because, ironically, the most powerful unconditional love I've experienced is that of my ex-husband mm-hmm. who, who said to me, you know, I am actually gay. Wow. And um, – we need to transition this marriage to a friendship while we're still getting along. And then who moved me and the kids out of a place that was toxic for us three hours away, reestablished us. And when he could have been going to live his big gay life and dealing with his own repression or making up for lost time for what he lost in his own repression, he lived with us for a full year Um wow to because it was what was right for the kids like that is a profound unconditional kind of love um but not Mm. what you're taught to expect because I thought Mm. it was supposed to you know I was raised to think it's the love of your parents the love of the church the covenant you know the covenant relationships you've got there that'll vanish when you deconstruct yes um (laughs) so but so as a as a therapist and I can hear the philosopher in you um, or maybe it's the poet. It's one of the two. Philosophers and poets are often the same thing. Is is unconditional love a thing? Does I it think exist? it is. I really, I think it has to. I think we have, as humans, we hold this wonderful polarity that we are inherent. We are inherently fallible. We are very, very imperfect. And that is such so freeing when we can say that without judgment. We're just noticing, wow, yeah, that's part of who I am. And also that we have this huge capacity for love. And so I like to think that love is unconditional. If it has conditions, it's no longer love. I think that trust is conditional. Trust Mm -hmm. absolutely has to be conditional. It moves up the pace of trust, as Adrienne Marie Brown says. But yeah, I think unconditional love has to exist in all sorts of imperfect ways, but without condition. Yeah. Mm. And if we look at the sensation of I love you, but the butt has this like sinking feeling after it and oh it feels so heavy 
And when you were talking about your ex-husband and how he showed up in such tangible, beautiful ways, it was so tingly (laughs) that that's the somatics of unconditional love. This like, yes, being held and safe and protected by someone who you really trust. Yeah. So let's talk about somatics. Um, So somatic meaning the experience in the body, the aspect Mm. of consciousness that expresses as sensation as as the five senses stuff like that this is a this can be a really difficult thing for deconstructors because we've grown up some of us have grown up in these hardcore types of evangelicalism or the church experience where you know we've got this self-mortification practice Mm -hmm. of you know we, we do the fasting and we do the um, self-punishment. It's, it's ironic. I think it's the first day of Lent maybe now, yes. um, which is <laughs> which is ironic because it's it's self-mortification. Um, we talk about putting to death the deeds of the flesh. We talk about the flesh being enmity with God. We talk about ourselves as being so inherently flawed and untrustworthy. And then when we deconstruct, we've got to kind of restore our relationship with ourselves and it's hard yeah. work. So talk to me about that somatic practice. Um, embodiment is one of the things that you do a lot of work in. This is just what I know from a good stalk of your Insta, which yes. <laughs> people should definitely follow. But talk to me about somatic work. Mm. It's so interesting because somatics is the opposite of one of the other tenets that we see in the fatal flaw, which is disconnection from the self. Mm-hmm. That's the, the easiest way to control someone is to disconnect them from themselves. And we hear that all sorts of verses, lean not on your own understanding, the heart is deceitful, always renew your mind of Christ. It creates this um, externalized authority that we end up becoming dependent upon. Um, And I think the word dependency is really important. We think about that from an addiction sense, but it's from a, a sense of innate need Um, It's if you um, disembowel someone, they have to plug in their bowels somewhere. Yeah, yeah. And so... A visceral kind of example, yes. (laughs) That gets plugged in at the pulpit. Mm. And so that the most genius tactic of control that the church uses is dousing the solution with shame. The solution is self-trust. The solution is pleasure, is embodiment, is our intuition. And all of that gets covered up saying that's the thing that's bad. We end up being afraid of ourselves. So the hardest part and the most important part about healing is reconnecting to the body. Yeah. And this is easier said than done when... um, Yoga was one of the most beautiful parts of my own healing journey. Oh, and yoga, all oh, that satanic thing that we all yes. <laughs> were warned <laughs> off. It's just really good for your core and your nervous system, guys, yeah. and your sense of connection. I don't think there's any demons in yoga. Oh, I just think it's so hilarious how uneducated the judgment is. If you're going yes. to have judgment, at least have it be an educated judgment. But they were talking about um calling up hindu demons yoga is not hindu no no so that's just a totally different thing thank you yeah yeah um those things that are the avenue to ironically our self-salvation are the things that are forbidden yeah so the first part that i always start with is focusing on how your body says yes and no, because okay. we do this so much that is non-consensual, the amount of hours that I spent at the church vacuuming, yes. doing yes. childcare for free, so mm-hmm. many hours every mm-hmm. single week for decades, yeah. lost in the dust of time. Yeah, Connecting with what I want means this is what I call the runaway bride moment. Fantastic Julia Roberts movie. I know, gosh, so good. She's a treasure. (laughs) At the end of the movie, she sits down with eight different types of eggs to see what kind of eggs she likes. Yes. And so- I forgot about that scene. mm -hmm. (gasps) 
<laughs> it's such an important scene. And the thing that I always think of is like, well, how does she know what she likes? Yeah. How does her body tell her, mm, this is good or mm, I don't like that? This yeah. is again, childlikeness. This is the yeah. ironic thing. The Bible is actually um, a wonderful book of magic when we can read it through not a lens of dogma, but through more of a philosophy of like, actually a childlike faith is actually really great yeah. to be able to connect with how our bodies say children do not overthink. If yeah. they like eggs, they put it in their mouth and they spit it out. Oh, or gosh, they say, I know, I know it. Hmm. You can probably see the evidence of that on the table <laughs> behind me. Thank God this isn't going up on YouTube. But yeah, you're right. Um, and this has been part of the part of my journey as a parent is trying not to crush that in my children yes. and trying to teach them consent. Because um, heaven knows that's been hard for me to learn. So yeah. Oh, yeah. So continue, continue with the eggs. I just want to listen to yes. you. I don't want to interrupt too much. <laughs> <laughs> when we can connect with what feels good, then we can really move into connecting with our own authority. And we can say, yes, I like this. We really all have this moment. I think everyone who is deconstructed has had this moment of emotional paralysis where you're yes. going to make a decision and you don't have God's will. You don't have a team of prayer warriors to intercede mm -hmm. for you. And you have to make a decision. And God, it is terrifying. Yeah. Mine was choosing a duvet. It sounds... <laughs> So do they? <laughs> no, was, but you know what? I've heard people paralyze over bank accounts. Yes. Over tuna. You know, yep. All, all stuff, you know, really simple stuff. Um, because we're kind of taught this umbrella theology. It's not even theology. There are no umbrellas in the Bible, guys. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, but where, how you've got the covering of God and then you've got the yes. covering of the husband and then you've got the wife and then you've got the children but you kind of have this other layer of pasta inserted in there um and yeah when you come to a point of making your own decisions it's yeah it can be a duvet that was your undoing but tell me about the duvet yeah. <laughs> it was post-divorce it was my very first purchase post-divorce of like how yeah. I wanted my house that was just going to be mine. First time I had never lived, I hadn't lived with roommates, wasn't yeah. in my marital home. And I was absolutely paralyzed. I had no idea what duvet I wanted. Yeah. I stood staring at the duvets for probably half an hour. Yeah. Touching them, trying to ignite something. Yes. And there wasn't anything coming from my body because... I hadn't been listening to my body for years. This makes so and much sense. It was like picking up the phone and my body had been waiting for years and years and years and it had just slipped away for a moment. And I was like, wait, <laughs> Where are a you? duvet. Yes. Yeah, that is so interesting. I think, I think for me this experience um, – my my Julia Roberts eggs experience because mm. um, I separated during COVID and then spent oh. the first nine months of lockdown living with my ex-husband who, and I think this is funny because my dad was the pastor and, um, you know, all the control stuff, you know, mm. blah, blah, blah. But my dad's name's Brian and my ex-husband started dating a guy named Brian. I was like, seriously, of all the gay men. <laughs> Anyway, oh, the universe so we made provides. A lot of, I mean, I mean, it was it was a little. I was like, this is this has to be Freudian, but anyway. Um, so, <laughs> um, but I so during lockdown, we're kind of in these spaces, just with ourselves, all of a sudden, just okay. going, who am I? What do I like? And the thing that I discovered was I'd been told, you know, when we had you and the pastor came over, and you know, they said, oh. This one's a sensitive one. You'll have to be careful how you raise this one. And my parents kind of raised me to be the kind of person they wanted. They wanted an extrovert. They wanted someone. Well, I, I perceived that they wanted an extrovert because I was on stage since from when I was 11 and, mm -hmm. you know, various different things. I found that the safest way to hide was in plain sight. So yes. COVID was the first time I had to go 
am I an extrovert? Mm -hmm. I don't think I am. Mm -hmm. I think it's a survival mechanism for me. I think I'm bubbly. I think when I'm nervous, I put on a show. But do I think I'm an extrovert? Do I need to be going out constantly and getting my fill from people you know, external to me. No, I really like my couch. I really like groups of one or two. And that wasn't, that was an eggs moment, um, which is going to be part of my lexicon now, I think the Julia Roberts eggs moment. And the other was dating. Oh girl, isn't that Mm. fun? Um, I realized that in amongst giving myself permission to develop my own sexual ethic, I had to realize that for me, um, I have to hold off physical interaction mm-hmm. until I know I'm not mirroring the other person mm-hmm. until yes. I know I've not slid right into mirroring and right into becoming the type of woman that they want me to be because that's what church taught me. And I had to listen to my body to figure out when I'm not doing that. And I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet because it takes time. My stomach has entered the chat because um, I didn't eat breakfast before doing this interview. So, people, if you're hearing grumbles, it's just my stomach making noises, okay? It's nothing else nefarious. But anyway, so, so yeah, so that was a really, that was a really big moment for me. Um, but it can happen in those smaller moments. So if we've realised that we're having a duvet moment or an eggs moment, what is the advice that you you give people? We have to slow down. We have to Mm -hmm. reduce the urgency because that coping strategy of mirroring happens so quickly. It's instantaneous that if we just follow that, oh my gosh, we're going to end up violating our own boundaries. Yeah. And so this is where we get to dialogue with our thoughts. So we've all had this moment where this is one of the things I love about being human. There's so many universal (laughs) experiences. Yes, gosh. Whenever you pass a fire alarm, we all have this urge, this instinct in us to pull it. (gasps) Yes. I've never compared notes on anyone. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. We don't pull it because we know there's a fine, it's chaos. There's no point to it. It is a thought, which we have trillions of a day an urge that we allow and push away. We say, thank you. No, Mm -hmm. that's, that's not how I want to behave. That's not aligned. It's not aligned with my values or my boundaries. We can do the exact same thing with that mirroring. It's like, Oh, Oh, what, how interesting. Thank you so much. But no, thank you. That's not how I want to. We can only do that by slowing down. Yeah. We have to reduce the urgency. And that a lot of that urgency, I think, comes from this uh, programmed idea that all of our actions and inactions have eternal consequences. Oh, my God. Uh, How much pressure? pressure. So much pressure. They just, they don't. No. They don't. The vast majority of what we do isn't life-threatening. No. I think that's one of the things that really gets conflated in the church is that we are so important. Ironically, we have a God complex that we're so important and that everything that we do has eternal consequences. And we are, we are important. The likelihood of our consciousness manifesting in this particular time and space is like quite small. Mm -hmm. And also our lifespan in the grand scheme of the entire galaxy right. is a pittance. Both yes. of those things are true, that we can be important and insignificant. At the same yeah. time, we can also just like chill. Yeah, that that is actually one of the things that I've said so many times in the last few years is two things can be true at once. Yes. Two yes. things can be true at once, like, you know, mm-hmm. When my children are squabbling and, oh, but she said, oh, but he said, two things can be true at once. I don't have to choose one of you over the other one of you. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. And when we have these these emotions of I'm terrified but I'm also magnetised mm-hmm. to something, to an experience, to a person, to love, two yes. things can be true at once. So, yeah, slowing down is the opposite mm-hmm. of um, there's my stomach again, the opposite of 
what we've been trained to do um Mm -hmm. my experience in 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 evangelicalism was so high pressured moment to moment are you jumping on these moments of um god inspiration or of um reaching out to this person or delivering the word and you just had to be on all the time all the time and and so one of my deconstruction things has actually been the highly spiritual and highly rebellious act of taking a nap (laughs) so lovely (laughs) that's incredible because it is subversive yes when your time has been so pressured non-consensual like you were saying out of for many of us our youth was Mm -hmm. commandeered into volunteerism and volunteerism Mm -hmm. which the the use of the word volunteer probably isn't necessarily right because it was a cultural Mm -hmm. expectation um a discipleship you know sacrifice a, a show of devotion um yeah so so that's that's interesting and yeah. and even the gender roles of that like we who were assigned female at birth mm-hmm. um you can be in the kids ministry yes. <laughs> and ironically you know. the children's pastor never has the title of pastor always no. misses never yes pastor. <laughs> yes yes so so that's yeah that's fascinating so so take me back to this this fatal flaw this somatic work slowing down is mm-hmm. is one of the profound keys that we need to sit with in this time uh, probably i dare say non-judgment of self would be yes. one of those wouldn't it <laughs> one of my favorite things to say is can you say that with a little less self-judgment <laughs> When we do really human things, like drop a spatula in the morning, we say, oh, how stupid of me. Like, well, yeah, yeah. I don't think that's an appropriate use of the word. It's actually just like that's a human thing. We're quite clumsy as creatures. If you've ever seen a deer walk through the forest, they're so dainty. We're just like pandas, not so much. And I think that's one of the biggest things is that our body is always listening to us. So if we're here to build trust with our body, we Mm -hmm. have to be conscientious of how we're talking to our body. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, we have to be conscientious of how we're talking to our body. Hmm. Yeah. So one of my big shocks moving into the house that I'm currently in was floor two like full full like floor to ceiling mirrors on the on the wardrobe oh, doors. Yes. yes. Seeing and our body. Yep. I was like, hello, because in the, the previous house, the mirror in the bathroom is actually obviously installed by somebody very tall. Um <laughs> and it was it was quite hilarious when I was heavily pregnant. And when I'm pregnant, like some people carry these like super neat little um, you know, little bundles. Mm-hmm. I do not. I become the Goodyear blimp. Like, <laughs> so I actually had to like stand up on my tippy toes and like tip my belly forward into the yeah. sink and like wake up to see myself in the mirror. And so I'd gone from that to being a, a mother of two who had had two humans stretch me to the point where I was honestly surprised my skin just didn't split open at the belly. Um, and I'm looking in this mirror um and seeing myself fully and um I don't let the kids use the f word the Mm -hmm. fat um even though I think eventually I would like to condition them towards fat is a fact not an insult yes Yes, as a person I do have body fat Mm -hmm. it does not define me Mm -hmm. um but at this point we just tell them that beautiful comes in all different kind of ways and when they say, mommy, why is your tummy like that? I say, because it was your house for nearly a year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I had to learn to thank my body for what she'd mm-hmm. taken me through. Yes. Um, and it wasn't just pregnancy. It was years mm-hmm. of trauma. It yeah. was years of fear. It was years of my nervous system being on such high alert that it had drained my adrenals of any reserves they had left. And still my body was trying to fight inflammation. Still it was trying to find meaningful sleep and rest. 
So how could I possibly look at that body in the mirror and hate her for what she'd yes. done for me? But I, but it took work. And now, like, I, you know, I could lose weight. I don't want to necessarily, though, because at this point, is it important to me? No, I'm healthy. Yes. I like the way I look. Um, you know, there, there would be some benefits. My blood pressure might dip lower if I mm. lost some weight. Um, but I can run around with my kids at the park. Yes. Um, you know, I can get up and down my stairs easily. Um, mm. So what, what is the big push to change how I look when mm. perhaps the most important lesson I need to tell myself is that I don't owe pretty to anyone, I don't owe skinny mm. to anyone, yes. um, and that my body deserves gratitude. But gosh, yes, hasn't that taken work? Yes. <laughs> This is part of the formulas that we end up equating of um, I must be this way in order to. Mm-hmm. And those types of formulas are so hard to extricate from yeah. our psyches. And I think it is in seeing our body the same way that you see your children. It's just this like beautiful, pure, innocent, how on earth could they ever yeah. be yeah. down to anywhere? There's no possible... Yeah way and seeing our bodies in the same way as our constant companion Mm -hmm. this beautiful friend who has been with you through so much there's every single cell has witnessed every part of your journey it's an incredible gift that we have to have these bodies hurting around our consciousness through this lifetime yes yes and is a body inherently evil? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> um, there's a lot of conditioning around that, isn't there? Yes. And ironically, a lot of um, contortions that the church has to do to prove that if we mm-hmm. are in the image of God, then this this is divine. That's one yeah. of the things I love about Gnostic cosmology is that we have what's called the scintilla or the divine spark imbued in our skin. Mm-hmm. And so we can't, that's part of the divine. How dare we insult yeah. what is divinely made Yeah. when that's, we are the divine. That's, yeah. I think uh, it's so frustrating how obvious it is. And how the church has created this whole system to make it so complex towards self-hatred. And it's so clearly a tactic of control. This is what every abuser since the beginning of time has done. Yeah. And I think no one crystallized that quite so well as Calvin. Yes. John Calvin with the idea of total depravity. Mm -hmm. Um, Just... and I, I think that modern Western um, Christianity doesn't function without total depravity. Yes. So, so to convert someone to a faith system, you still have to, you first have to convince them to hate themselves. Yes. Yes. Or convince them that their self-hatred is deserved. And I think that is evil. I think yes. that is evil. That's one um, of the things I hate most about um, the AA community is that they're preying upon vulnerability mm-hmm. of people who are struggling with addiction are already in a well of self-hatred. And then you're capitalizing upon that and yeah. saying, oh, but there's purpose to your self-hatred. No, no, yeah. that's trauma. Yes. That's trauma. Yes. So understanding, yeah, well, God, there's, there's so much there, like the difference between, I, I think, I think all of us should be trauma-informed, but but if we have to stop short of all of us being trauma-informed, pastors should be trauma-informed. Yes. Um, therapists, obviously. Yes. Um, journalists should definitely be trauma-informed. <laughs> you know, teachers, like, um, it's, it's so profound but if if you are a survivor of toxic religion or of domestic violence and you said in the beginning battered wife syndrome Mm -hmm. I remember when it first became public knowledge that my then husband and I were no longer going to my father's church um, somebody wrote on a Facebook post that 
my husband had posted posted that he went to an affiliated church and he had a battered wife relationship with that church. Mm. And I was like, oof, that's a moment of realising the kind of abuse dynamics that can exist between a person and the system through which they find their quote-unquote eternal salvation. Um, But then there's the question that we've been asking victim survivors of domestic abuse for time immemorial is why doesn't she just leave? Mm -hmm. Why doesn't he just leave? And that's not an easy It's not an easy question because what we're dealing with when we're dealing with victims of abuse we're dealing with that dependency and that dependency comes from our existential needs as humans. Our mm-hmm. existential needs are belonging, purpose, and meaning. Mm-hmm. We get those served on a platter as soon as you walk through the doors of the church. Yes. You belong. You have a built-in friend group with Instant. a very small, fine print that we all know is there that if you leave, they won't be there anymore we've all experienced that meaning oh my gosh chock full of meaning we are always looking for to find and create meaning in our life whether it's religious or not that is like we get handed meaning literally in a book and purpose if you don't know what to do with your life ask god god's will will Mm -hmm. reveal itself to you Mm -hmm. wow how easy is that yeah. And so when we're talking about leaving these abusive situations, we're actually asking people to starve themselves of getting their existential needs met. And yeah. we as humans will never do that. Yeah. We will take the toxic breadcrumbs yeah. over nothing because yeah. at least this is the brilliant thing that abusers do is creating that dependency by saying you will never find it elsewhere that's yeah. what the church says all the time yeah yeah <laughs> like literally literally I remember that being said to me mm-hmm. after we'd sent the letter because we had to quit my letter oh. um, to my parents um <laughs> literally having that said to me by somebody on the leadership team you can't take this elsewhere yeah and in the beginning in that moment it was terrifying Mm -hmm. I thought everything that I'd learned was no longer going to apply elsewhere and then I went but would I want it to anyway yeah would I want to take it elsewhere anyway and in that moment I was I think blessed with the clarity of knowing that I would rather relearn Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I mean, let's be honest, sometimes I feel like an alien. (laughs) A lot of the times I feel like an alien. Um, And, in fact, one of my dear friends, she's just about to get an alien tattooed on her hand (laughs) for that very reason. Oh, I don't know. She's got her own reasons. But um, for me, I'd be like, yeah, that's me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, it's it's a moment, isn't it? It's a moment. I remember that moment when I was um, in grade seven. I was already getting bullied because I'm weird kid um uh-huh. five to the weird kids right we grow <laughs> up <was> fantastic <laughs> grow up very anxious yes <laughs> in my devotional that morning um it had talked about how um I think it was Paul wasn't afraid of persecution and we as Christians in the modern world need to not be afraid of persecution so the challenge was to write a sign that says Jesus is Lord and wear it to school that day so I did. I did. Oh my gosh. It made everything 10 million times worse because you can oh. imagine. Oh. You can only imagine. So not only I alienated then myself from this whole community that was not the church. Anything that wasn't the church, I was now an alien. I was some <sighs> weird kid wearing a giant sign <laughs> that says Jesus is Lord. Oh. My only choice then was the church. Yeah. That's not a choice. No, no. Christianity. Um, my t-shirt said, the city belongs to the Lord. Which, yeah. <laughs> oh. This is the thing, is that children will do and say 
what will meet their existential needs. We are attachment-based beings. So how we can belong, how we can be accepted, we will do anything and believe anything. Christianity is the best formula for acceptance. Yeah. Because it's built in. Yeah. And I, do you know what? You mentioned cosmetology and the scintilla before, and I wanted to mm. ask you about that, and we'll come back to that. But right now you've mentioned something quite profound, and it is attachment. Yes. Attachment theory. Oof. Ah. Uh, attachment. So in the, in psychological study, it's, it's, it's uh, applied to how a child will attach to a parent mm. um, and will predict our relationships later on in life to some degree unless we do the work and those of us who can do the work you know it starts with awareness of the the kind of attachment type now we have sort of we have a secure attachment style we have anxious avoidant we have ambivalent and disorganized and disorganized so in your experience is attachment something problematic that deconstructors need to work through if they've had a lifetime in church? Yes. Yes. Mm. Okay. There's a few different layers. Oh, surprise, surprise. Yeah. There's layers to this onion. (laughs) If you have Christianity in your family, so some people come into the church, they stumble upon it, going to youth group, et cetera. Their deconstruction will look different. You're a pastor's kid. That has a a really important psychology around it. I'm a Mm. pastor's grandkid, so I'm one generation removed. So I was raised by a pastor's kid. Oh. (laughs) Girl, we need to talk because I'm raising pastor's grandchildren, but I'm raising them outside the system. So anyway, might have to book you myself, Emma. (laughs) With pastor's kids, there is this phantom pressure that you're always mm-hmm. being watched. My mom talks about it as growing up in a fishbowl. And so I she do raised do. us. I have mm-hmm. used that. Yes. Yeah. So it's a for me. <laughs> yes. It's a metaphor across all PKs. Yeah. So we were raised as if there was a fishbowl, but there was no yeah. fishbowl. It was a phantom ah. fishbowl. Right. That's what's called the panopticon which is Michel Foucault, beautiful French philosopher, talks about how the most um, efficient prison has a cylinder in the middle and the prisoners never know if they're being watched. So they end up policing themselves. Yeah. That becomes our primary attachment figure, this Mm -hmm. warden that we will never see, but is always Mm. watching. That's God. Yeah. So we have a lot of deconstruction in our attachment because we don't only have attachment to our parents. We have attachment to this judgmental and abusive deity who's always watching, weirdly like Santa, who is here to punish and deem us if we are worthy. Let me tell you how terrifying Matthew 7 is, where it says, you will serve me your whole life. Come to heaven, say, Lord, Lord, I served you, and I will say, I never knew you and cast you away. That terrified me as a teenager and Mm -hmm. an adult Mm -hmm. and a 32-year-old. And now I'm nearly 40 and just unlearning Matthew 7. (laughs) Mm. Matthew 7 is what we would call disorganized attachment. When there is fear connected to love. Yeah. Oh, fear and love are not the same. Yeah. Disorganized attachment is when we have fear that our caregiver will hurt us. And for children, hurt means non-attunement. Yeah. So Hmm. to not be mirrored. And you mentioned this wound earlier in mirroring um, men that you're dating. That's an overcompensation of a disorganized attachment wound. When you're giving what you needed, you needed mirroring as a child. You didn't receive it. Yeah. That's what you're giving other people. We give what we need, of course. Yeah. Goodness. (sighs) So attachment is a, it's a big wide world where we get to relearn what love is. That's one of the things I've actually loved about my deconstruction journey is that it forced me then to deconstruct absolutely everything. 
then I had to deconstruct relationships. I had to deconstruct love. I had to deconstruct what I wanted in life. Mm -hmm. And so it is a terrible and horrible black hole of an abyss that leads somewhere. Mm. It is the birth canal into the life that we were made for. And that's the thing that the church is always saying, there's nothing else out there. There's nothing else out there. There is. There is. There is. There really, really is, which I just love. So we, you know, you mentioned Santa, and I just think this is really funny because as a mother, I'm raising this beautiful little girl. Yes. And she's precocious and she's spirited, and we decided to raise our kids without body shame, mm-hmm. um, which meant that I had to unlearn my body shame. Yes. We decided to raise them with bodily autonomy, which it's it's fun because if you tell the child that they're the boss of their body and then tell them to clean their room. Oh, <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, there's, there's layers in this. <clears throat> we saw Santa down the street mm. before Christmas and I said to Allegra, my daughter, um, oh, no, I said to, I tried to basically manipulate Santa into my plot to get Allegra to clean her room mm-hmm. before Christmas and I said to her, I said to her, Santa won't be able to find your bed to put the, the presents on. You don't you don't want him to trip over and not be able to deliver the presents, so you're gonna to have to clean your room. And she looks Santa in the eye and goes, just put him under the tree in the lounge room. <laughs> and Santa and I, Santa and I <clears throat> had no comeback to that. Mm-hmm. But then as we walked away, she goes, Why would why would I want a strange man in my room anyway? Oh. Boom! boom (laughs) and I thought to myself and it's it's kind of the second or third time that my little girl has shown me that she's going to be fine with consent we've we've done our job with her I just now have to do my job with me um (laughs) so it's interesting but take me back to the the scintilla cosmetology cosmetology what I what I like about this And I'll also just point out for people that something I've noticed that you've done all the way through this is when we've hit something big, you've breathed into it. You've gone, oh, it's a discipline. It's a moment of slowing down, Mm -hmm. of going, how does this feel in my body? Mm -hmm. Let me feel this, this sentence, this, this statement, this, you know, I've, I've noticed that I'm learning to do it myself. Um, I don't usually ask people who sit in this kind of coaching space, um, this psychology space to tell us about their journey, but I think there can be a lot of fear in people about opening themselves up to even learning about cosmetology, astrology. Yeah, but it's a beautiful thing. It's it's a beautiful thing to to learn about these other traditions. How's your experience been with that? Mm. I feel very lucky because I had a few trailblazers for me. My sister deconstructed before me about a decade before me and got straight into Wicca. Um, oh, really? Wow, I prayed for her. <laughs> I'm sure my sisters are praying for me. I'm seven years out, so maybe the next few years hold some hope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when, I, when I deconstructed, then I messaged her and was like, where, sh- where should I start? Um, she sent me a book that I would recommend again and again called Wicca for the Solitary Practitioner. Ah. Um, it was life-changing. Yeah. One of the things that I loved about that book is that the purpose of Wicca is to connect with nature. That was the thing I always felt missing from yeah. Christianity was nature. Yeah. And... The thing that I loved about it was it said it ha- Wicca has a lot of practices and I am Wiccan in practice because I, I do, I'm a Capricorn. I do love yes. s- systems and structure. Yes. There can be some rigidity in Wicca of like purple candle for this blessing, do a circle, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. What I loved about this book is he said, it doesn't matter. Yeah. It, there is so much space for you to use whatever candle you have to turn around in a circle or to mess up the blessing. It's totally okay. 
And that released all of the eternal pressure of performance. (laughs) Yes. And really allowed me to internalize my own authority. Yeah. And then I got into tarot and wow. Oh, tarot fundamentally changed my life. Yeah. Because instead of asking questions, and this is something, even as a therapist, I am notorious for, which is asking someone else what I should do. Yeah. Can't tell you how many times clients come to me and ask me, what should I do? And if you have a decent therapist, they should say, what does your body say? Yeah. Yes. And if you don't know what your body says, okay, let's learn how to listen to your body. Yeah. Tarot allowed me to ask myself a question and to see the response. Let me tell you, I was terrified the first time I pulled tarot. I was (laughs) terrified. It didn't help that I pulled the hanged man card. No. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Don't react. Read the little booklet first. Yes. It's fine. It's totally fine. The hanged man is actually really, really beautiful. And that's actually ironically, when I read tarot now and do interpretations, I quote the Bible more than I ever did when I was Christian. Like, oh, wow, the hanged man is the number 12, which is such a beautiful cosmic number of the universe creating space to witness itself, two and one equaling three. And the hanged man in a number four position representing the four elements hanging in a meditative state on the tree of life. It's so... Beautiful. Beautiful. And when we can release the fear, that's the biggest thing is that we don't do anything in fear. Yeah. When we're afraid, we're using the back of our brain. We don't have access to our prefrontal cortex where we make rational, logical decisions. So sometimes when I think about the things I did in the church, I'm like, what was I thinking? And the answer was I wasn't. I was afraid. Yeah. I was afraid of not belonging. I was afraid of going to hell. And coming outside of that, being able to actually ask myself a question and just sit with a question and be in the mystery and not have an answer for everything. Wow, life is too mysterious. Yeah. Astrology, no, tarot then led me into astrology. Um, I started getting into the Thoth tarot by Aleister Crowley. very, very complex and brought in a lot of Hebrew symbology. So I was able to um, bring in some of my Christian um, Uh nerdiness. It is useful for some things. (laughs) Astrology was such a wonderful lens for me to understand myself more. And that's the thing with all of these things that we're told are so dangerous or forbidden. They're just a lens. Yeah, what you do with that, totally up to you. Yeah, it is a static experience that is supposed to reconnect you with yourself, and so that's always my question: of like, is your tarot reader being prescriptive and telling you what to do, or are they inviting you back into yourself? Because the New Age community is not immune to fundamentalism. No, not none of us are. No, but. It can be a practice, a stepping stone connected back to ourselves. Yeah. All of this is so beautiful. And I think I think there's a lot in this episode about slowing down, about learning to understand ourselves better, about embodiment and, and so many things. Um, I would love to work with you again. I would love to do another interview at some point mm. in the future or, or have you do a guest um, guest blog, but where can people find you? Uh, my most active places are Instagram, TikTok, and Substack. Substack mm-hmm. is like the most intimate space. Um, Instagram is at Siconium Healing Practice. TikTok is at Siconium Healing. Substack is emmaocean.substack.com. On my website, I do have a workbook for deconstruction, 
because I'm a Capricorn, I of course made a step-by-step process how to deconstruct. <laughs> yes. Pulling you through the cycle of grief, um, yes. moving through trauma and developing your own personal spiritual ethic. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Emma Ocean, thank you so much for today. It's been just beautiful. I'm so glad we're connected. Um, and I love another nerdy girl who has thrown herself into the learning and the mysticism and the mystery and um, and and figuring out what kind of eggs you like. Um, mm-hmm. This is Unchurchable with Kit Kennedy. We'll see you next time.